Stories from the East and West. Hi, my name is Wojtek. You're listening to Stories from the East and West, the podcast that tells little-known Central and Eastern European stories that changed our world. I'm the show's senior producer, but even if you're a regular listener, you probably don't recognize my voice. I promised myself and my co-workers and my family to never speak English publicly. And they have proof. There is no problem. Uh, but you should really just, you should just host the episode, Wojtek. I think that's a good idea. No. Yeah, no, 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 no. I think it's a good idea. Is it? Never. But you, you sound lovely. <laughs> no, no, not in 10 years. No. But because of the story you're about to hear, I changed my mind. In the early 60s, a woman decided that the way men were dominating the world of mountain climbing didn't make any sense. She went on to defy the whole community and became, well, I think an icon is the right word. There are so many crazy stories about her, almost all true, and it was impossible to fit them all in. Like, I won't even tell you how she walked over 50 miles on an iceberg on crutches, how she came close to becoming the most famous race car driver, or how she saw her own doppelganger in the mountains. I won't tell you all this, because I'll tell you something even better, and just seriously encourage you to go look her up after listening. Her story just amazed me. It will amaze you too. And I promise, it will stay with you for a long, long time. Today's episode is about Wanda Rutkiewicz, one of the greatest mountaineers in history. Before we get into Wanda's story, there's a couple of things you need to know about mountain climbing and Himalayan alpinism. Although the story is about a Polish climber, most of it takes place out there, in the highest parts of Asia. Himalayan climbing is a deadly sport, many times more deadly than skydiving, race car driving, or base jumping. On certain peaks, the fatality rates are staggering. That was Jennifer Jordan, author of Savage Summit, a book about the first female climbers of K2, the second highest mountain in the world. The staggering death rates Jennifer mentions really are staggering. For example, for every 10 climbers that try to make it up and down the beautiful mountain of Annapurna, three of them die trying, a death rate of 35%. If you think that's bad, back when Wanda Rutkiewicz was climbing the Himalayas, the death rates were much higher, sometimes double what they are today. Basically, you were much more likely to die up there than come back safely. But for Wanda, the slim chances of surviving weren't the only obstacle to overcome. It is also for one that for centuries was a strictly male bastion, and maybe that was the whole point. Many male climbers have told me that one of the reasons they go on expeditions is to escape the noise, as they call it, of everyday life. Fanda started climbing in the 60s. It was 15 years before the first woman had reached the top of any one of the world's highest mountains. 
14 beasts known collectively as the Eight Thousanders. From the very beginning, she had to fight an uphill battle in more ways than one. The entirely male-dominated climbers community was a mountain in itself. But Vanda was strong enough to overcome that challenge. How? I met one of three Poles and generally very, very, very few people in the world who have climbed all 14 8000ers. Well, my name is Piotr Kusternik. Well, uh, okay, I'm, I'm a climber. <laughs> this is what he had to say. All what I can say about her, that the most distinguished part of her, uh, of her personality was determination. And she had absolutely unusual determination and she was uh, the, the most stubborn climber I have seen in my life at that moment. I've never seen someone who had such a strong mind uh, in, in the mountains. Wanda not only was an outstanding climber, but also a true character, a person full of contradictions. She was beautiful and flirty, but would become stiff and distant whenever a flirt seemed to turn into something more intimate. She couldn't dance and would shrink, lose all her awesomeness when asked to. She spoke in a beautiful, philosophical, poetic and a little out-of-date way. Anyway, wherever she went, she stood out and this was important because Himalayan climbing is not only super dangerous, but it's also extremely expensive. And it always has been. Meanwhile, the Polish economy was in crisis. There were shortages everywhere. Western loans had been squandered and the country was burdened by foreign debt. Just to give you a sense of how hard it was, my dad, a car engineer, was earning the equivalent of around $30 a month in the 70s. Just getting a permit to climb any one of the 14 8000ers would cost between $20 and $100,000 back then. This is why only the cleverest, most exceptional climbers went on expeditions and Wanda was one of them. And she definitely had something interesting to offer. She was a trailblazer for climbing in all female teams and given her early success in the Alps and the Hindu Kush, she could make a case that she and her female friends could climb any peak given half the chance. However, what every climber needs on top of all this is luck. And Wanda got really lucky in 1975. My dear friends, I would like to welcome you all to this really historic event. It is the first intergovernmental meeting in the world where women form part of virtually every delegation. If ever the United Nations announced it was International Women's Year, it was an opportunity Vanda couldn't miss. As a part of Women's Year celebrations, she managed to organize the very first Polish expedition to the Himalayas, specifically to the Geshebrums, a remote group of peaks located on the border of China and Pakistan. It was supposed to be a woman-driven expedition. I made a Skype call to somebody thousands of miles away. 
Bernadette McDonald. I'm a Canadian writer. She specializes in mountaineering culture and history. Apparently specializing in Polish subjects. <laughs> yeah, that was a joke. You don't need to use that. But I did. Uh, Wanda was keen to climb what was then the highest unclimbed peak um, with an all-female team. Their goal was Gashabum 3, the world's 15th highest peak, slightly under 8,000 meters high. At the same time, there were men who were uh, along on the expedition who had another plan. The men wanted to climb one of the nearby higher peaks. But as the expedition sort of transpired, it turned out that Wanda had men on her team as well. And I think this was a problem for her. It, was, it wasn't a problem in that she appreciated the help, but I think it was a problem for her in terms of it not being an all-women's expedition. And it was a big deal, because the whole point of this expedition was to summit the unclimbed peak in an all-female team. Also, suddenly, Wanda was now leading a mixed team, and she started giving distinguished male climbers strict orders. At the time, she was a, a maverick in the way she was climbing for herself and uh, also you know, taking on this job of, of leading an expedition that consisted of both men and women. So I'm sure it was, um, it was a real stretch for, for those guys to uh, take orders from Wanda. She was extremely hard on herself, but also equally hard on everybody else. She did have a fairly, um, kind of a difficult style. Uh, I think she ordered people around quite a bit. So it was probably not an easy situation for them either. Despite all the arguments, the two teams, now mixed, successfully climbed both peaks, with Wanda setting her foot on the previously unclimbed Kasherbrum 3. But yeah, the goal of an all-female team fell apart. She simply wanted to to be successful on this expedition and at that moment she realized that she's able to be successful when she used men and she did it so that was practical uh, and pragmatic essentially the climb involved a lot of digging through snow and it didn't make a difference how skilled the female climbers were despite this expedition being by far the biggest success in polish mountain climbing history you wouldn't have thought that if you seen the team. Most of the complaints were that Wanda was a bad, selfish leader and guilty for causing all this chaos. So, it, yeah, it, it didn't turn out to be uh, an incredibly happy expedition, but they were certainly successful. There were mixed results for Wanda too. In Poland, she was labeled as a despotic leader and a difficult partner. The labels stuck. The belief spread that she was ready to sacrifice everything and everybody in the way of her own success. But internationally, the success of the whole expedition was attributed to her, and as a result, her career started to gain momentum. She became widely recognized as the face of the emancipation of women in mountain climbing, something that parts of Poland's climbing community didn't like. One man, mesmerized by her achievement, was a German doctor with a very German name, Karl Herlikhofer. When it came to organizing expeditions to the Himalayas, he had a similar reputation to Wanda. 
One day he decided to put together an expedition to Mount Everest and he invited her to join. On August 12, 1978, Wanda headed to Nepal. When she got there, the expedition to Mount Everest turned out to have very strict rules. Each climber had to carry a total of 70 kilograms of equipment to the higher camps. That's almost 155 pounds. The same rules went for the men and for Wanda. Plus, this international Austrian-German-French team not only didn't offer her any special help, but they told her directly how reluctant they were to climb with a woman, and especially since Karl had made her deputy leader. They felt almost humiliated being led by her. However, despite all these adversities, after over two months proving every day how self-sufficient she was and what an excellent climber, she planted a Polish flag on the peak of the world's highest mountain. Piotr Pustelnik again. Climbing Everest was the magic. Because for us it was a milestone of, of Polish Himalayan climbing. She, she had a determination to go. She had a determination to prevail all difficulties on the road and she prevailed everything and got to the top. And it was for me the most iconic climb in her life, not only for herself, but also for our community. For any of you who know anything about how commercialized climbing Mount Everest has become, you have to realize that back in 1978, climbing this mountain was a huge undertaking. There was none of the safety there is today. No pre-installed fixed ropes, no ladders over dangerous crevices, no stationary base camp, nothing. Just the climbers and one huge, giant mountain. Being the first European woman, the first Pole and the third woman in history to beat it, the climb made Wanda a star, an absolute celebrity in Poland, as well as one of the best known woman climbers ever. Looking back, climbing Mount Everest only opened the way to even bigger achievements in Wanda's career. In 1985, she climbed the deadly mountains of Aconcagua and Nanga Parbat, both in all-female teams, which was completely unprecedented. A year later, she became the first woman ever to climb K2. And that year was an infamous one for that mountain. Yeah, to be the first uh, woman to climb K2, and particularly that year when it was such a difficult situation, so many people were dying, and the, you know, the conditions and the weather and just the, the atmosphere at the mountain must have been incredibly difficult for her and all the deaths. That year, a total of 13 climbers died on K2. Uh, but she still managed to pull it off. I think it was uh, an amazing achievement. Probably the biggest one from a climber's point of view. At that point in her career, Wanda was undisputedly the best female climber ever. As Bernadette MacDonald put it, she was, she was decades ahead of her time. But so far I've told you mostly one side of the story. The other 
is that the more successful Wanda was becoming, the more her private life was falling apart. Kręgu przyjaciół, nerów, partnerek, z którymi wiązałam się liną, wyjeżdżałam razem w góry, byłam na wspólnych wyprawach. Of the many partners, male and female, who I've been tied to by rope, climbing together up a mountain on some shared adventure, or among my circle of friends, my family. Over 30 of them are dead. It's a tragic price to pay. Many times I've tried to understand why exactly, why I go on despite all this. I know what it means to live. When I climb, I feel fear. I know the value of life. This appalling death toll includes her brother and her father, who both died tragically. The death rates I told you about at the beginning of this episode are no joke. Also, among her biggest losses were her great friend and climbing partner, Halina Kruger-Serokomska, as well as the French couple with whom she climbed K2. They both perished while climbing back down. On top of all that, she had had two divorces. Both marriages had been very unhappy, unsuccessful relationships. Moreover, because of her difficult character, she had become more and more alienated among the Polish climbing community. It started after the troubled expedition to the Gesherbrums, and it just got worse. Underneath all her great achievements, there was loneliness, dejection, anxiety, a void. The, the reality of, of Wanda's situation is that in actually most of her life, um, she didn't have a lot to come home to. You know, it, she didn't have, for a large part of her life, she didn't have a husband to come home to. She didn't have a family to come home to. Um, she didn't have a career to come home to. She was a climber and uh, her life was in the mountains. And she knew this was no good. After climbing Everest, she tried really hard to build a life outside of mountains. A part of her really wanted to quit. She even started racing cars for her thrills instead and resumed her computer science career. Well, I know she was thinking about life after 8,000 meter peaks. I mean, she had some ideas about writing and filming and uh, I think even opening a hotel and this kind of thing. Um, so she was thinking about that, but even as, as little as I knew from her personality, um, I had the feeling that it would have been difficult for her to settle down. Eventually, she'd always just go on another expedition, use every occasion to climb another mountain. No doubt, climbing was her greatest passion, her obsession, and this drive pushed her to become an iconic figure. But, but at some point she found herself in a trap, in a place where there wasn't much more in her life outside of climbing. But of course that couldn't last. She was getting older, slower as a climber. She needed more time to recover and acclimatize at high altitudes. And she knew it. She was aware that continuing her climbing career was becoming more and more dangerous every single year. She was almost 50. 
She was no longer capable of being the maverick super climber that she had been a decade earlier. Knowing all this, feeling her mortality, Wanda did something unexpected. She announced a new project, the Caravan of Dreams. She was going to climb eight of the eight thousanders in less than two years. It would mean that she would complete the Himalayan crown, an achievement for climbing all 14 of the world's highest peaks. Back in 1990, only two absolutely legendary climbers had accomplished it, Reinhold Messner and a fellow Pole, Jerzy Kukuczka. But neither of them climbed more than three of these huge mountains in a single year. Plus, they had whole teams working for their success. Um, I mean, I remember having the conversation with her in France about this plan that she had. And I mean, obviously, she had already accomplished so much and, and she was very charismatic and she was all of those wonderful things. Wanda had already scaled six out of 14 and she wanted to join this elite group as soon as possible. Her plan was to jump from expedition to expedition and summit the remaining eight mountains in either very small ad hoc teams or do it completely solo. But it was pretty clear, I think, to me and to anyone who would have had the conversation with her that her plan was was not a good one. It, uh, it was too fast. Um, she was trying to do it too quickly. I mean, it was just unreasonable. But... That's part of what made her such a, a tragic figure is that she she knew that she had a limited amount of time left in which she could actually do these things and she just pushed herself. She had a lot of setbacks right off the bat, but she did manage to climb the first mountain very quickly. And then... And then she fell in love. She had met a man with whom she could finally share her passion and need for freedom and independence. The reason her previous relationships had failed. His name was Kurt Linke. He was a German doctor and of course a climber too. Whenever you ask any of Wanda's friends about it, they say that this was her last chance to escape the vicious circles she had created a moment of happiness she had wanted and needed so badly. She was even heard saying like, oh, you know, me and Kurt, we're planning our old age together. Something she would have never said before. But being hardcore mountain climbers, old age together was never going to happen. Kurt joined her right after her successful climb on Gashabrum 1 and they were attempting to climb the next one together the nearby Broad Peak. But at some point, Kurt tripped. He lost his balance suddenly and fell off the mountain face and slid all the way down to the bottom. When Vanta got to him, he was already dead. And when, when she lost her, her boyfriend uh, on that climb, there was, e there was one thing less to come home to. Piotr Pustelnik, who you heard earlier, not a man of many words, didn't hesitate to call it simply a tragedy. So yeah, I think that was probably a, a bit of a turning point for her. Um, you know, her focus was then entirely on the mountains and, and maybe she lost a little bit of 
her judgment. From this moment, there was nothing left that could hold Vanda back. Even though the plan of climbing eight peaks in two years didn't work out, she started climbing the remaining peaks as quickly as possible. The very next year, she made it to the top of both Cho Oyu and Annapurna in very quick succession and completely solo. That second climb, however, was afterwards called into question by a member of a team she had joined. After a long investigation by the Alpine Commission in Vienna, it was finally acknowledged she did do the climb, but it left a terrible stain on her image. Vanda was becoming even more alienated. It was followed by an unsuccessful expedition to Dolagiri that had terrible weather conditions. She lost a lot of energy, health, time and money not achieving anything. And this is how we get to the year 1992. Vanda was preparing for her second expedition to climb one of the scariest mountains in the Himalayas, Kanchenjunga. So, yeah, I I think that the the general consensus is that she was still in pain, had not fully recovered and was probably cl- climbing too slowly, but her motivation was over the top. Moreover, Vanda was reportedly going through severe depression. She had anemia and at least two severe frostbites. She lived only to climb and had astronomical ambitions, but she couldn't see how much her abilities were becoming more and more limited. Nevertheless, she joined an international team that went to Kanchenjunga, led by a future star of mountain climbing, a Mexican, Carlos Carsolio. Weather conditions were very harsh that spring. What's worse, most of the team got food poisoning. Finally, only Carlos and Vanda took part in the push for the summit. They left the last fourth camp together at 3.30 a.m. Carlos was young and was much faster than Vanda, so they agreed to climb separately. With a lot of difficulty, he made it to the top and then started heading down. Just a few hours climb beneath the peak, he met Vanda. It was very late and it was obvious she had zero chance of getting to the top and making it back to the camp before it was too late and too dangerous. Carlos begged her to join him and go back down again. But she refused. She decided to stay, to spend the night in a tent at an altitude over 8,000 meters in a death zone and attack the summit the very next day. We... uh actually got along really well we had a good time together and then we stayed in touch after that we just by letter and then uh, I received the answers from her from Kathmandu and uh, she was just on her way to uh, Kanchenjunga and so of course that was the last letter that I got from her Vanda was never seen again not as a living person not even her body She simply vanished. Carlos and the other climbers from the expedition looked for her but never found any trace of her or what happened. A few days later, she was presumed dead. 
Some people, including her own mother, never accepted this verdict. They believe Vanda climbed the peak and came down the other side of the mountain to live secretly in a Buddhist temple or a small village. They believed it was her way out. A way out from the media pressure she had brought on herself after she had announced the caravan of dreams. But we'll probably never know what happened to Vanda. Why she decided to spend the night in a death zone, something every climber avoids at all costs. What we do know is that at the moment she disappeared, she was the brightest star in women's climbing. A trailblazer who had single-handedly energized a whole community of female climbers and paved the way for generations of women competing with men on the world's highest mountains. How far ahead of other women was she? The first female climber to accomplish the Himalayan crown was Edurne Pasaban from Spain. She completed her collection of 14 8,000ers in 2010, almost 20 years after Vanda's death. Vanda's story shows us that true passion can push us to achieve great, unbelievable things, but when it starts becoming the only thing we have, it's very likely to turn into a trap, even a deadly one. Most climbers who die prematurely die in accidents, but not in Vanda's case. She started her career in the Himalayas as the leader of a huge expedition, and on her last climb, she was completely alone. Climbing gradually filled every aspect of her life and eventually she had nothing and nobody to come home to. So she decided to keep going. She kind of acknowledged that in an interview for Polish radio that she gave a few months before her death. Na samym szczycie jest się nigdy, bo chociaż na nim stoję, to właściwie jest to tylko jeden szczyt, a jeszcze przede mną. You never really make it to the top. Because even when I'm standing on it, I can see it's just one peak and that piling out in front of me there are more. I know I'll end up going there because I don't want to stop. A stop can only be a rest. Standing still, that's the end. It's just death. Before we end, I have to say that this story really got under my skin. I spent way too much time reading about climbing and climbers watched way more movies and documentaries than necessary, I had sleepless nights trying to figure out what, what is this? What is the thing up there that, that's so attractive, so unique that people are keen to sacrifice and risk so much to be there? That they want to go into air that is so thin that you can barely breathe, into temperatures that cause frostbites that lead to amputations or long and painful treatments, that they continue to climb after their partners die, that they go on long expeditions despite having families back home and despite the fact that there is simply no rational reason to climb big rocks. After a few months of scratching my head and talking it over with everybody I knew, after my wife became absolutely convinced that going on an expedition had suddenly become my dream and I was doing a worse job of proving her wrong every day. After all this, I got the chance to interview Piotr Pusternik. 
I knew he never answers this question and always says that answering it is either impossible for non-climbers or that there's nothing to explain if you're a climber. But surprisingly, after hearing this question from me, he looked at me the way you, you, you would look at your puppy that just did something both stupid and cute and said, Mountains are very perfect world for me, but uh, I paid a lot for this. But uh, you simply do this. Uh, you, d- you don't think about death, you don't think about uh, solitude, you don't think about difficulties, you don't think about that you can lose you know, part of your health. You, you simply want to climb these mountains because they are part of your life. You, you have to do this, simply. There is no rational answer for this. So please, don't tell my wife, but I've already started running again and training to start climbing one day. I know I shouldn't after this story, but I just can't seem to get it out of my head. This episode of Stories from the Eastern West was a Wire Walker studio production for Culture PL. Our team included Wojtek Oleksiak, Adam Żuławski, Grażyna Soczewka and Michael Keller. And it was the very last episode of season one. Thank you so much for staying with us, listening to the show and being so awesome. We'll be back later this year with season two and more great stories, so stay tuned. There will be a few bonus surprises along the way, so you don't forget about us. Plus, if you want to listen again, you can now find us on both Spotify and NPR One, which is very cool.